0: (laughs) Hi unicorns, I'm big mountain skier and adventurer Lindsay Dyer and this is the showing up podcast Conversations with real life people who make a life in the outdoors to inspire us all to embrace our weird Do the thing even if we suck at it and fully show up for this one wild and precious life
1: And this is where I start overcompensating in life. It's really interesting Mm. This is where I made the shift from being inhuman to being superhuman
0: Like, you guys don't think I can be anything or do anything? Watch this.
1: And this is very typical of of early childhood trauma. Hmm. We choose inhuman or we choose superhuman. Hmm. And this is where I started to choose superhuman. So three jobs, making money, and I started going to church, which was really interesting. And this is my first lesson in community.
0: That's National Geographic photographer and adventurer, Corey Richards. We talk about his work, but more importantly, his life and how trauma is healed or maybe not so healed by the mountains. Corey Richards was National Geographic's 2012 Adventure of the Year and the force behind the award-winning film, Cold, which chronicles his team's ascent of an 8,000-meter peak in the winter. He has survived avalanches and abuse to be one of the most raw and eclectic adventure photographers working today. Our conversation is real. We dig deep below the image of what people see when they look at a modern-day adventurer to discover what really drives someone. It's not always pleasant. So for this episode and the next, I'm talking to Corey about his life, his motivations, and being a role model for men in the era of Me Too. We also touch on his relationship with social media, which is interesting since one of his most famous shots could be described as a selfie. I caught up with him at Mountain Film in Telluride, Colorado, and I'm really excited for you to hear this one. But real quick if you've got foot pain sore arches or foot cramps i've got a solution for you luckily this episode of showing up is brought to you by weave weave is a technology company that makes your feet more resilient Made from photos of your feet taken on your phone, Weave custom fits insoles and sandals to help you keep going in comfort in the mountains, at the beach, or anywhere life takes you. Here's how it works. You take a couple of photos of your feet with the Weave app and Weave turns those photos into 3D models. Your models are then used to custom make insoles and sandals just for you in San Diego, California. Weave combines 3D printing with traditional techniques to make products unique to every customer. You can even choose your own artwork. You skiers already know this, but custom fit makes a huge difference, and the millimeters, they really matter. When footwear is made to the precise contours of your feet, with just the right support in just the right places, you will feel, move, and live better. Fans of the Showing Up podcast can get 20% off all orders by using the code SHOWINGUP. That's showingup at WIIVV.com wiivv.com or with the Weaves mobile app by searching for W-I-I-V-V. One last thing, Weaves ship for free and come with a 30-day happiness guarantee. Thousands of happy customers have bought Weaves and their feet feel amazing. Try them today using the code showing up at Weave.com. Here we go. Okay. We're on.
1: We're on. Corey
0: Richard's in the house. We have been looking forward to connecting on a podcast for so long. I'm so glad we finally made the space.
1: Well, I remember when you first started talking about this. At least with me, we were in a car in New Zealand <laughs> together, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know that angst that you sometimes have of oh, I want to do more. And this was your idea. So it's that was almost what two years ago. Yep. Mm-hmm. So congratulations to you. Yay, yeah. you. Yeah. Yay, Lindsay.
0: Yeah, it has been. So, it's been so great good so rewarding everything that um that i hoped it would be
1: yeah yeah what have you learned in all your podcasts (laughs) so far
0: the reverse uh what have i learned i that i love learning that i'm this curiosity is it's so fun to actually have an outlet for it yeah yeah but enough about me let's like (laughs) set the stage as we do uh we're in telluride colorado Mm -hmm. it's that time of year for mountain film how Mm -hmm. long have you been coming to mountain film
1: um, actually, Mountain film was my first sort of introduction to the festival world. In, I think it was 2011 um, And then in two thousand and twelve, I had a film here called Cold that won the Charlie Fowler award. and then uh, in the, I think the following year, I actually judged here mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. with my photo editor, Sadie Courier And then I took a few years off, and this is this is my first time back um, in a, in a little while. but this is very much like my, sort of I would call it my home festival
0: yeah I think a lot of us mountain people feel that that way
1: yeah it's a it's a really special festival um I mean we were just talking now I think some of the greatest value is is it's small enough to feel very very intimate uh but there's still you know a lot of um, big ideas and big conversation but for me the value is connecting and being able to do a podcast in a hotel room like that's that what a what a gift Mm -hmm,
0: mm-hmm mm-hmm so we're staring up at beautiful Telluride It hasn't snowed this year, which is crazy I've never seen it It's so dry
1: Yeah, uh, that's part of the conversation Right,
0: but just to jump into it Because uh, we were talking before we started the podcast This Me Too movement mm-hmm. is is so hot right mm-hmm. now Talk about what it's like to be a white male In yeah. the modern, modern world of filmmaking and adventure um, and all of it
1: this is a really revealing question because it, it, it's hard to say what you're going to say right, mm-hmm. right now. And you have to create space and honor everybody's experience within the movement. And it's... Um, it's never been a more
0: unpopular time to be a white male. It's a very unpopular <laughs> time. Well,
1: I don't... Yeah, I mean, it is kind of... It's unpopular and it's... um And, and I think that can be a little... Um, Damaging because if, if white males are the problem, or patriarchy is the problem, sure. they're also part of the solution. And to ostracize uh, based on gender and race is exactly the thing that many people are fighting against. So exactly. to, to identify people uh, as sort of the enemy, as being a white male, um, is actually counterproductive. But that being said, you know, like I said from the beginning, I think we have to really honor the, and and celebrate this moment because it is a, a stepping out moment for women and it um Excuse and it me. you know it's it's really important that we look into sort of the duplicitous nature of what humans are and take this moment not to say everybody who's doing you know everybody like this is bad and everybody like this is good Creating but to more say, separation right. exactly that's mm-hmm. that's more Reductive and I think we need to be um, really looking at how complex we are as humans and the fact that we can be brilliant and creepy and (laughs) You know, we're a very strange primate and and we
0: have the masculine and the feminine within us. Yeah, and if anything the I think the ultimate Purpose is to create more unity. Yeah, but initially that pendulum is swinging toward Difference, yeah. but at least it's creating a conversation that wasn't there before.
1: There was a beautiful article in the New York Times that was. It said publicly we say "Me Too," hash, uh, and then privately we have misgivings. And it was a. It was just a, a very nice look at how, basically the. The inherent intersection of male and female is awkward, <laughs> and just because a guy hits on somebody isn't sexual misconduct right like that's right. It, that doesn't mean people can be very creepy I look back to the days when I was drinking more and you know like I'm sure I was a creep <laughs> and that's scary you know to think like
0: but at the same time men don't even know how to be men <laughs> these days I right. think it's really confusing time to follow your instincts uh, be respectful Uh, But also be a man Yeah And where are the lines
1: Well I think that is Such an interesting point And I hope we get Really back to that later Mm It's like What does it mean To be a man right now Exactly And
0: It's one reason why I have wanted you On the podcast For so long Because As much as women Need healthy role models Right now I think men Absolutely need need more guiding lights and it's a it's it's a confusing time and to have someone uh like you who is so accomplished um who's been walking this line and without a whole lot of healthy role models for yourself and trying to figure that line out for yourself um i absolutely hope that this conversation can can help lead other guys that might um might be looking for for have those same questions that you might be struggling with
1: i hope so too i mean if there's anything that I can offer, at least I hope, it's it's telling our own story more uh, honestly. And I know that's a lofty ideal. I know that's a lofty goal. But um, the way that we show up in the world is so, I mean, how we resolve ourselves comes out in the way we show up in the world. So if we're not resolved internally, then we're not going to be fully realized or actualized externally. And I'm, of course, we're all still in that. I don't think that finds finality until death, but we can make great strides towards it in life.
0: So what is it like to be, to be someone who, from the outside, Mm -hmm. I mean, you've summited Everest without oxygen on top of how many Everest summits?
1: Well, actually, I've only, I've only climbed it twice, but, um, once without oxygen, uh,
0: I guess I'm just asking for someone who seems to have had it all as far as success. You've been Mm -hmm. on the cover of Outside, Uh, you have spoken at the World Economic Forum at the highest, you know, with the highest diplomats, you you are representing some of the fluffy, not fluffiest, fanciest (laughs) incredible brands, you've worked in the gnarliest conflict zones. Um, it feels like you have done the hardest things across the board. Where are you feeling accomplished? Like you checked off a box that you're you're proud of as a man or as a human. And where are you still struggling?
1: Uh, that's a really good question. Um, because one of the fundamental issues that I face as a person, just as a human but certainly as a man in this day and age is the sense of lack of accomplishment Mm. um i don't feel like i take adequate time to observe my history and and the things i've done and say you know congratulations Mm. you did well like it's always okay that's done and now what am i doing next and i think that's or it's still not
0: quite good enough
1: it's not good enough Mm -hmm. um I think that's symptomatic of our culture Mm -hmm. that we are we are constantly driven towards more 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 and more and more Um, I'm not good enough I need to be sexier I need to have a better body I need to make more money where
0: I thought I would be I I don't feel the way I imagined I would once I checked off that box
1: absolutely I mean Mm -hmm. that's the sort of the anticlimactic nature of having big goals Uh, and then you achieve those goals big ones and it is so anticlimactic that you make a bigger one Mm -hmm. rather than you know giving yourself sort of some compassion saying good job um so I think it's you know I don't give myself enough credit I don't think in any way that I've given myself like uh, I don't think I've, I've stopped to say good job at any point and I struggle with that
0: that's pretty cool that you are at least aware of it <laughs> yeah because otherwise it is it's a it's a disease
1: it's a disease that I mean, there's two, it's twofold. It's, it's wrapped up in our sort of ADHD culture where we're, we're glued to our phones and, you know, Instagram and checking out what everybody else is doing. And I often say it has us comparing our insides to everybody Mm -hmm. else's outsides. Mm -hmm. So the whole breadth of our human experience to a curated vision of, of what somebody else wants you to see. But then beyond that, and I think more true to form in my story is that like, you know, you brought up the word value and, um, I've, I've gone to great lengths to prove a certain sense of value outwardly, but I've not fully learned it inwardly. So I have a, I have sort of a crisis of self value.
0: I think a lot of people, uh, in our, our space do, you know, it's almost uh, this reflection on the outside world of if I conquer that, I'll be good enough. If I, you know, uh, and so I like to keep that in mind too, um for people that might be listening that maybe are, well, if I just accomplish that, you know, Mm -hmm. when, when the work is, is internal, but let's start from the beginning. Okay. Uh, you have such an interesting story, (laughs) runaway kid homeless. Yeah. Just, I think probably one of the most interesting stories, um, in our, our world. So, so take us to the beginning.
1: Well, um, I don't think this story works without getting into some sort of weeds about precognitive development. Uh, and I just talk about that out of the gate because it, it sets the scene. So my mom with my brother uh, suffered from postpartum depression. And so... And he was
0: first. He was first. He's, yeah,
1: he's two years older than me. And so he uh, was. he had what's called insecure attachments, which essentially means that he can't sort of complete the emotional feedback loop that he needs he's not getting the the emotional feedback that he needs from his primary caregiver so
0: and that was because mom was she uh, was suffering from suffering, postpartum
1: gotcha postpartum depression mm-hmm. so when i came along he figured out and and kids do this this is all like zero to three zero to five their they brains figure are out, not developed they're not developed mm-hmm. but they figure out brilliant ways to get their needs met right and so, without empathy with exactly. This empathy grows.
0: I, I just I'm sorry to cut you off, but no. I've just learned this too in the free, prefrontal cortex, which doesn't develop until much later in a child's development. I mean so we're kids not, are really mean to each other and that's why. Because they can't feel what they're doing to another kid.
1: Yeah. And yet we still have the capacity to understand it. We see, we can we have those moments as children where we reach out and we go, Oh my God, I feel pain for this other person But it doesn't fully develop. And especially in precognitive years, where David was, um, you know, he was he was searching for ways to get those emotional needs met. And so I come along, and he figures out that if we, if he starts sort of beating me up, or we have this tumultuous relationship, that he gets emotional feedback from my parents. I mean, granted, he's getting in trouble, but it still stimulates. It stimulates that that need or that. Um, that part of his brain where he's now getting his needs, quote unquote, met. It's an ineffective way to do it. However, or getting
0: attention. We could just boil it down to you get attention. You either get attention from positive acts or negative. And right. typically kids will go one or the other. And specifically within, if you've ever read the birth order book, mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. It kind of explains that too, depending on your birth order. <clears throat>
1: that's interesting
0: often the first kid will either be a shining light of and get all their attention through being uh highly like perfect yeah um or they'll go the other way and get their attention from negativity and then the next kid in line also you know gender-based um will go the opposite way yeah and and there's a lot more to that but that's kind of generalizing
1: I mean it's so, yeah, and so, so to the point, to exactly that point, David and I had this very uh, tumultuous relationship where, it, it, you know, as we grew up and as certainly we developed as young men, uh, it became violent, very violent. And, um, and so from on a precognitive level, looking at my upbringing, I'm coming into the world with what's called an inescapable stress, which dramatically shapes. Were
0: you typically the victim?
1: Well, I don't want to say victim, but I was the younger brother. Right,
0: like how could you defend yourself when you, you haven't grown?
1: <laughs> right, and so the other thing is that, you know, without my parents being able to see this, which again, I have to say very clearly, it's not their fault. Nobody's at fault in this. Right. Um, people are just f- figuring out their way in the world, right? And you know, I was, so I'm getting beat up, right? And I can't escape it, and I'm also feeling like I'm not protected. From my primary caregiver. So that presents a a vacuum of value. Like, well, why am I not being protected? And this is, again, this is all precognitive. So I'm not having rational thought. I'm just seeing that I'm not protected. Why is it that I don't get protected? Why don't I have the protection I need? I must not matter. Mm. And so that belief is built into the ground, the very ground level, the foundational level of existence. And... So it doesn't matter. And this is where it gets really interesting with identity politics. It doesn't matter if you're a white male. If you have that built into your psyche from mm-hmm. the very ground level, you, it doesn't matter what your privilege is. You might have access to things, mm-hmm. and you might be able to build a career in a different way, but that fundamental value of self...
0: And the way you see the
1: world is filtered. Is, is, that's how it shapes who you become. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, I think we need to be very, very careful about how we identify people with privilege. Generalize. Mm-hmm. And we, we can't overgeneralize. So anyway, we grow up. It becomes very, very violent in the home um, between my brother and I. And again, I don't want to say that like it wasn't unusual violence in terms of how much we were beating each other up. That wasn't the, the traumatic part. The trauma comes in because what David was experiencing is rage. And so rage extended onto another person. That's emotionally traumatizing. There's a big difference between brothers beating up on each other and one brother being so angry with the world that it comes out as, I want to fucking kill you. That's a different kind of, that's a different kind of experience. And anybody who's been the, the target of rage will know that. Mm. Um, And, and so that's what ends up being traumatized. And again, I have to say like, my brother is a fucking awesome guy. He's a great human being. This is not by virtue of him wanting to be a bad person. This is by virtue of a whole set of circumstances that he had no input in.
0: And isn't that always the case?
1: That's usually, yeah, it's usually the case. And at some point you start making decisions that you need to be held accountable for, but in these very early years, you're not doing that.
0: And just so you know, too, we, we develop emotionally over the first seven years of our lives. Uh, whatever goes on then um, very much has impact mm-hmm. emotionally of how we'll see the world for the rest of our lives. So if mom's, if mom's not around, if mom's not present, if, you know, whatever's going on at that time, Um, It very much sets the stage. (laughs) Yeah, and so it sounds like you've done a lot of work around Healing that time of your life.
1: Well, I mean if I'm gonna be very honest with you, I've done a lot of intellectual work Hmm. um, And I'm you know, I've really just scratched the surface of the emotional work and I think oftentimes those two things get mixed up Because it's really different to understand what happened and to feel what happened Uh, Are you at
0: peace with it now?
1: I'm very much at peace with it but I also understand that intellectualizing things hmm. is for me safety. is a form of defense yes. mm-hmm. if I can talk about this and project it that I have it all together I still don't have to feel hmm. and so I'm working on that you know and,
0: and are you saying that feeling is a way out of it like where does feeling come in
1: well in healing it feeling is healing um so like
0: so, so for people who might be listening like if if you went through any sort of trauma yeah. like everybody has, everybody some, has. something right yeah. a, in their childhood that um wasn't ideal so what advice would you give to to healing it so that it doesn't continue to to come up in your patterning as an adult
1: I mean if I'm going to be honest I think uh therapy is is a beautiful thing mm-hmm. and really tracking back to because once you can be unflinchingly honest about your patterns and who you are and what you do in the world, good and bad uh, then you have a then you have a platform to jump off into and you can go and you can search out well, why do I do these things and First, you peel back that layer of understanding it and then once you understand it, you can really start to go okay well, how does that like from a somatic level how does how does that make me feel you know what am i what am I experiencing when I recollect what am i uh, how am I processing this? What do I do? What is my pattern when I go back to this place? So you're
0: becoming aware of it versus always at the mercy of it or always in it versus oh, looking at it.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. There's, like, oh,
0: there I go again, getting triggered in this way or this type of person shows up in my life and I'm feeling this way again.
1: Right. And and, and how, do I, uh, how do I sort through that um, by actually engaging in the physical responses that I have uh, and watching my actions awesome.
0: um, So take us back to the story. So like, yeah. you're getting beat up. What's next?
1: Um, we were both smart kids I went to high school two years early as did my brother um, My grades, you know, I started to suffer from depression uh, Which is pretty normal when you're in a house where this stuff's happening. How old are you about? Now? I was 12 13 okay. um, and I basically went from straight A's to like failing out of school um, I jumped this around is in Utah? this is in Utah, Salt Lake City and I you know I, I left West High School I went to um, Judge Memorial Catholic High School which was a private school and I was asked politely to leave after about three quarters of a year because I was just pushing against everything I was just breaking every rule I could for the sake of breaking it because um, I was a contrarian, you know, and so I went back to public school and just completely got lost. And essentially, what happened to to make it more of a bridged story is I ended up in treatment, um, behavioral rehab. It was based on the twelve step program. It was in Northern Salt Lake City, and it was sort of this inpatient outpatient treatment center where I was there for eight months. Um, and I and I, you know, I had sort of ups and downs with it I ran away eight times or three times during that time period um and finally my parents said all right well you don't have to go back but you can't live at home and so that effectively made me uh, you know homeless um for lack of a better word I mean I I didn't spend a lot of time on the street but certainly some Mm
0: -hmm. so what's that like
1: um you know it's uh I think that was pivotal for my development because when you talk about empathy well, at the time it was just very confusing but I think it's scary
0: and what did that mean when you say living on the street what what specifically was were you living in your car did you have a car I
1: didn't have a car at the time I mean I would bounce around um sometimes I would sort of squat and there were times where I was just out um and honestly, that time period is very, very like my recollection of it is really. Were you
0: partying too?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was doing drugs, and but I was, I was almost doing that more as a point of identity than a point of addiction. Sure. I like I wanted to be accepted.
0: That's part of being a cool guy. Cool
1: guy, at and that time, especially with a brother who I desperately was craving to be like approval from. Uh. I went after, you know, an older audience, and I was the cool young kid who was doing all the dumb shit, and so I just craved that attention, and so drugs and alcohol became a part of my life very early, I did, you know, I did acid when I was 12, um, you can imagine what that does to a developing brain.
0: I can't even imagine.
1: And, you know, it's like... <laughs> So I, beyond that, you know, here I am sort of homeless and and this family friend reaches out and says, hey, Corey can come live with us if he wants. And they're in Idaho. I moved up there. I got my GED when I was 16. I moved back to Salt Lake, started sort of mending the relationship with my parents, fell apart again, went back to the hospital, the psychiatric hospital. Their recommendation is, well, your son, you know, there's this really great program that we think he should go to. It's called Lifeline, and it was exactly the same program that I'd been sent to when I was 14.
0: And would you say that that program worked or didn't well,
1: work? Well, no. I mean, I ran away three times, and my parents, like, mm. looked at these medical, quote-unquote, professionals, and they're like, you just told us to do—did you even read the fucking file? Mm-hmm. Like, he, he's already been there, mm-hmm. you know? Um,
0: and as a kid, why do you think it didn't work? Or <sighs> in, look, in looking back, I'm saying, why, why didn't those programs work?
1: Because we're taught that we're broken, uh-huh. We're not taught that we're valuable. I mean, I think anybody can relate to being a kid and having an adult that treats you with a level of respect where you feel like an equal and they value mm-hmm. you as a human. And those are the ones that you gravitate towards because, A, you feel important, you feel heard, and you want to you do what right they want. Right back would. to equality. Right. <laughs> and, and it's funny to see how when kids are treated, you know, with sort of due respect. Um, they show up. They show up. Yeah. And they mm-hmm. are highly intelligent and bright
0: so advice to a parent who might be struggling with a kid like you are what advice would you give them right now
1: it's not about treating your kid as an object that needs to be fixed it's about treating your kid as a whole human that you would have coffee with and talk to these issues about and and trying to avoid getting wrapped up in the emotion of the fight but really hearing somebody for what they are so really listen really listen
0: ask a question and really listen without the with making them feel safe, like you're not going to get in trouble for your answers. I'm yeah. here to. I'm here to listen as a friend. Is that what you would say?
1: Well, see, there's this weird thing. You don't want to be a friend, right? You don't. But you. But but then there's a myth of parenting that is sort of pervasive. That it's this disciplinarian role right. only, right? And that's not and it. And there's
0: separation. I'm the parent, and you're the kid.
1: Yeah. Um. So I'm playing my role, and you you play your role. And you once you can step into the role of I don't see you as an object. I see you as a human, a whole human who I care about. And tell me about like really what's going on. Love it. And creating that space. Now, granted, that takes a long time to create. You're not going to go from one to the other. But that comes back to resolving the conflict within yourself. Because if you're not resolved, and you're trying to go at your kid and to get them to resolve, forget about it. Good point. So if you're if you're observing huge conflicts between you and your child, first place to start is going to therapy yourself.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Wow, isn't that the truth? We're so often trying to point the finger towards the outside when we can so often take responsibility somewhere within ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so back to the story. <laughs>
1: no, this is a, I'll try and keep it short. Um, no,
0: I mean, that's kind of the point. I'm always, you know, we'll go on tangents, but the story gets us there.
1: Well, and so anyway, I, you know, I sort of ran into a wall with my parents again when I was 17, and they asked, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I, I'd like to try living with my aunt and uncle in Seattle. Um, So they took me in uh, and this this was a sort of a boom moment of growth in my life in very interesting ways And my uncle, you know, I wasn't in high school obviously and he's like, okay, well you can live here But you got to get a job. So I got three and this is where I start overcompensating in life It's really interesting. Mm. This is where I made the shift from being inhuman to being superhuman
0: Like, you guys don't think I can be anything or do anything? Watch
1: this. And this is very typical of of early childhood trauma. Hmm. We choose inhuman or we choose superhuman. Hmm. And this is where I started to choose superhuman. So three jobs, making money, and I started going to church, which was really interesting. And this is my first lesson in community. Because to that point, you know, I was a fish out of water. And all of a sudden, and it was a, you know, an evangelical sort of uh, modern Christian church... And all of a sudden, I found this community that, at the time, seemingly had no judgment. They just loved me. Mm-hmm. And it was surrounding, and it was, it was encompassing, it was warm, and there is such value in, in seeing and in, in having those experiences. Now, I'm not advocating for being Christian. I am not. But at the time, it was exactly what I needed. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: community. Absolutely.
1: I needed community. And that's the thing when we talk about kids again. The reason we're having so many problems with kids these days, I mean, you look at the school shooting epidemic, we, we do not create community for ourselves and for our children.
0: And they say, you know, I can't remember the exact quote, but the opposite of something like the, the worst thing you can imagine, (laughs) the opposite of it is community. Yeah. Uh, and we so often think that we're alone and I, oh, isolation. Yeah. Like isolation equates to death because that's where you really think you're the only one in the world. And, and the solution to that is community. Yeah. And it's not about love and hate as much as it is about isolation and
1: community for the, for the win. (laughs) Yeah. And who you surround yourself with, because if you surround yourself with, I mean, idiots.
0: Or even just listening to a podcast and recognizing, wow, that person feels some of the, the low points that i do maybe it is okay to keep going
1: well Um, that's my whole ethos with mm -hmm. the message that i have right now i mean outside of political and sort of social messages is is you know we have to step into a place with ourselves where we're willing to both admit to and experience vulnerability and solve it through community
0: absolutely and that is 100 percent why i wanted you on this podcast
1: (laughs) So anyway, I, back to being weird and like hyper-Christian for a little while. <laughs> um, out,
0: what's your age at this point? 17. Okay.
1: My uncle says, well, I think you should look, look into going back to school. So I I applied to some schools. Um, I actually got into a seminary school in Northern California. I was going to be a youth pastor. Interesting. Um, and preach it. Preach it, right? <laughs> and uh, And then I got into another school my SAT scores were horrible. Um, but I wrote an essay to a school called Rocky Mountain College in Billings, Montana of all places. Mm -hmm. And I went there, I ended up going there. Um, my parents were pretty close living in Red Lodge. Um, and at that point I started to have community again. And I, uh, I started, well, I started to have community with people my age and, so there was a healing there as well. And my parents, again, you know, despite all of this, the shit we had been through, they were very, very supportive. And so when this, the, I guess it was the first summer uh, in between my freshman and sophomore year of, of university, I decided to go to Denali and Peru. They were super supportive. You know, I had been brought up climbing and skiing. And so they were like, yes, go do this. And this was my introduction to like reintroduction to the mountains.
0: Yeah, is that also why you chose Rocky Mountain College? Well,
1: I mean, I chose <laughs> Rocky chose me. I I wouldn't have gotten in anywhere else, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a high school dropout with a GED and not great SAT scores, you're pretty limited.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. What what did the mountains and climbing, you know, what role were they playing in your childhood and and why did you choose to go that that route at that time?
1: Well, people Children who have sort of a traumatic upbringing can oftentimes feel um, a certain element of disassociation or lack of belonging. Mm -hmm. And so the mountains and this community offered identity. So we're all misfits. (laughs) We are a little bit. And we feel out of, you know, not really comfortable in our own skin. And the mountains gives us this place to perform, to excel, and to be a part of something that... Uh, feels bigger than us and so it forms an identity that demands nothing of us other than what we already are made of Mm. and And it
0: treats us all the same
1: it treats us all the same it's a great leveler Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so I got back into climbing and the next semester I decided to you know I asked my parents if I could study abroad my grandma had put some money aside for me you know growing up for for university and uh, and so I moved to Salzburg Austria I met a guy named Andrew Phelps, who was a photography instructor there. And he looked at some of my pictures and he said, I think you should do this. And I don't, for, to this day, I don't know what he saw because, you know, I look at those pictures and I'm like, there's nothing here. But he was the one that said, you should do this as a, you know, you should do this as a career.
0: Wow. So yeah. you had that mentorship. Wow.
1: Yeah. And he's amazing. And he's in my life to this day, you know, and you know, we're not in close contact, but we reach out and touch base every now and again. And so I was there, I was in so Europe. So
0: was that an example of someone who, who treated you like an equal, like you were saying, who saw your value 100%. and therefore you followed it?
1: hundred percent. Andrew saw no delineation between me and you know, somebody, you know, I was 20 at the time, and a 35-year-old. He was like, and when you're 20, you want to feel important, you want mm-hmm. to feel validated. So that treatment of that is, is imperative. And so he'd have me over and we'd talk about photography and he treated all his students the same, you know, as these young intellects, but they, that they were equal. And, you know, to be invited into somebody's house, and we have to be careful with that, I know. An, but adult. Like, an mm-hmm. adult. You know, right, an adult, right, right. we have to be very careful about this. But how we do that is really important. You know, professors having these interactions with these young minds and making them feel capable an is, equal, an equal is mm-hmm. so important. Monumental, monumental mm-hmm. in development. Um, after and I, and I, I spent a summer sort of bouncing between Chamonix and Interlaken, uh, climbing and and you know shooting. Went back, did a second semester in Salzburg, and then moved back to the states, and started my. I started going to school at the Art Institute of Seattle. Um, I met a. Wonderful instructor named Barb Penoyer, who I started assisting for. She introduced me to another photographer named Bill Cannon, who I started assisting for, and I dropped out of school again after a year and just started working full time as an assistant. And that money that I made doing that in Seattle in those years was um, then put towards going on climbing expeditions. I did a sea kayaking expedition when I was 20. One. This is something nobody knows about. Not one photo was ever published from that.
0: Yeah, I had no idea about that.
1: Yeah, I did a sea kayaking expedition from Cairns, Australia, to the tip of the continent and into the Torres Strait.
0: How long was that?
1: It was a thousand miles, forty-one days. Never been in a sea kayak before. <laughs> um, saltwater crocodiles, box jelly. I mean, it was a very audacious, like, yeah, overwhelming goal. Did I you remember. plan it or? No, I was. It was just six of us buddies who decided to go, and I remember being the least equipped to deal with it. Uh, you know, I, was, I think I was the youngest guy there. And I remember doing, like week two just losing my fucking shit. I'm sure. Just sobbing on the beach. Like, so overwhelmed.
0: From what specifically? I um, mean, I can think of a thousand things, but what
1: was it for you? All of the things that you're thinking. Being separated, you know, being very far away from home, even though I was used to that. Um, being very isolated. Uh, being so dependent on these other five people. I was scared. Um, How about the group dynamics? It was tough. There was one guy that I just couldn't deal with, you know. And I was still fresh out of a very tumultuous relationship with my older brother, and this guy reminded me of him. Mm. And so there was there was tension. What there.
0: about danger? Did you guys run into any storms or like?
1: It was it was all way more dangerous than we actually <laughs> thought at the time. I mean, the crocodiles out there are no joke, and um, open water, especially like crossing Princess Charlotte Bay, was. You know, you lose sight of all land, and oh, wow. you're just in these little kayaks, and the swell, you know, is, you're like up, you're down in the trough, you can't see anything, it's just water, and then you go up on the, you know, the crest, and you see infinitely, you know, right. it's just, in uh, it's a-
0: did you see crocs?
1: Yeah, oh yeah.
0: Because um, I mean, uh, recently, right, like, we know those stories here at Mountain yeah. Film, and never knew it was a thing Yeah, <laughs> that. yeah. Um, were you ever concerned? Like, or, Always. Or were there attacks? Or were there...
1: Well, there was no attacks, but, like, landing was the big concern, uh-huh, right?
0: Because that's where they hang out.
1: Yeah. Like, shallow, kind of murky water, mm-hmm. muddy estuaries, things like that. And then pulling yeah, into some of these mangrove forests. Oh, and my God. she's <laughs> just fucked.
0: How would you protect yourself against a crocodile that you can't see and they plan on you not seeing? <laughs> like, and that's part of their strategy.
1: You just prepare yourself well for death. Really? Be- yeah. That's I mean, there's no... At? You're not if you if it happens. I mean, travel in groups. Of that's course. a really
0: good point of everything that you guys
1: do. Well, is you too. Like, that's it's... always an option.
0: No, I do not take risks that could kill me. Well, I mean, sure,
1: there's those. You're,
0: I guess, but nothing <laughs> like I feel like you guys do.
1: I don't know. I mean, you just. I think it's reckless at times, but there's of course there's things you do. You when you're in those areas, you all travel together, right? Mm. Like so, it's you know six six-meter mm-hmm. boats mm-hmm. all right on top of each other. Sure. Um, you camp in places where you don't see croc slides and things like that. But it, okay, you know. Awesome.
0: Let's tell some more stories. Yeah. Let's hear some expedition stories from Corey. I had no <laughs> idea. You're a water guy too.
1: Yeah, I love water. Um, but it really focused back on, you know, I spent, f- oh, I think, three or four seasons in Peru climbing before I went to the Himalaya. Hmm. Um, Why Peru?
0: I mean, I it's, can assume.
1: It's accessible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the highest mountains in the world, or it's second highest mountain range in the world. Um, the mountains are a little bit more digestible than the Himalaya. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very easy to access. It's not, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. You can do a whole summer there for six, you know, or, or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, I I just got immersed in the culture down there. I loved it. I stayed at this woman Zarella's place, and it sort of was a famous hostel. And it one summer, I actually was I was soloing a route um, on Artesandrahu, and I found uh, I found a body, and uh, it hadn't been you know it was from the '80s. And I put this like this is a story that very few people know. I, I wrote about it in Rock and Ice years ago, but. Uh, I found this body and ended up connecting the dots between him and his family, which was in Slovenia. They had lost this, their son in the 80s hmm. on a, in a paragliding accident, never found his body. And then his sister flew to Peru to meet me. We went up on the mountain. I had a body bag made that I could wear, pulled the body off, brought it down, and buried him at the base. So like wow. there was this like crazy time period in my life where I was...
0: How old are you at this time?
1: Uh, it was 13 years ago, so 20 24, 23, 24. Wow. Yeah. That's so, a lot
0: bigger than just like I got to the top, bro. I got to the pictures. top, bro.
1: <laughs> but I was also really tortured. You mm-hmm. know, I was I was and I really I looked up to people like Steve House who were doing these massive solos and um and I was trying to sort of emulate that style um mm. and 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 climb from catharsis. Mm uh there's a subject yeah
0: can you explain to people who might not be in our world you know about that because it it is such a motivator that people might not know about
1: well i think it's yeah so catharsis being you know this act of sort of it's almost an exorcism Mm -hmm. um i think a lot of there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of darkness in people that
0: motivates some of the greatest accomplishments
1: yeah and i think and this goes back to that duplicitousness of people It's, it's i mean I guess complexity is a better word. Uh, we actually, I listened to Alex talk about this mm-hmm, a little exactly. bit on, on your podcast and um, we have to be honest that climbing from pain or doing these endeavors from pain is real. Mm-hmm. But I also think we have to, f- we can't keep doing expeditions to sort out That's our the issues. Way it has been, yeah. but it
0: doesn't necessarily mean that it will be in the future. But I just, again, I just want to explain to listeners um, you know, it's almost, it's the style, right? right? So explain what that is.
1: Well, something happens in your life, you know, you break up with a girl, mm-hmm. you have an abusive relationship, you, whatever it is. You're
0: deeply suffering.
1: You're deeply suffering in some way. And there's a physical output that uh, you can bottle your...
0: It's very, it's a very masculine...
1: Uh, coping mechanism. So that's why I want to I want to talk about it. Well, I guess it is mask I I don't. I, there's nothing wrong. I, yeah, no. I I'm just. You're I'm right. I'm just trying
0: to mostly explain it.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's it's like this reactionary uh, activity where you where you take your your goals and you wrap your pain you, into this. them. Fuck you! I'm gonna do it. <laughs> and and I still have. And some I'm willing of that. to die trying for yeah. it.
0: Because what else? fuck you. Well, and what. Is there a purpose in some places? You're questioning everything at, at, at these times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing, but I'm just, I'm trying to set the stage for, um, and, and I feel like I don't, I don't really have the authority to really talk on it because so many of the people that you're looking up to, I think, um, what were the, some of their motivations? Well, and it, yourself and, and your, and your peers, you know, like, what do you think? Get specific about what motivated some of your, all of our heroes. Death. Death Mm -hmm. of
1: friends, death of loved ones, uh, love. I mean, they're the big ones. You know, divorce. Mm -hmm. I mean, having gone through that myself, I know how painful and how much energy that can provide. Um, And so they're the big issues that don't get talked about. Exactly, yeah. That's where it all comes from. It's all the stuff that we want to resolve in this external action. But the truth is, it doesn't get resolved that way. Interesting. Interesting. It will never get resolved that way, but can,
0: but there's got to be some sort of, I mean, just like um, it, that sense of accomplishment must be some
1: sort of resolve. It's not resolve. That's really? mask. Are you sure? A hundred percent. Wow. It's too. It's two totally separate. I mean, I'm just talking psychologically. I'm just saying,
0: like, okay, you you feel like you've lost everything for one reason or the other, right? And you you channel that pain mm-hmm. into into the suffering it takes mm-hmm. to be on the side of a mountain for months at mm-hmm. a time. Um, and, and you do really confront, I imagine, uh, death in mm-hmm. some way. And you, over, you, you don't overcome it, but you survive it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know that you can. So I would say to me, that sounds, sounds very healing.
1: I, I think metaphorically, in the mm-hmm. way you just described it, mm-hmm. for sure. I think actually, yeah. in practice... There's no. no resolve there.
0: Oh my gosh! You're just, I'm so upset. <laughs> <That> <laughs> because, so
1: upset. because here's the thing: you don't fundamentally work out the issues of that you've gone through, whether it's in a divorce or or a breakup or mm. death.
0: So, so okay. you're just
1: making yourself. You're distract. First of all, you're distracting Fair yourself enough. with an immediate prospect of survival, uh-huh. right? That takes all of your focus that away from wherever your, your pain is. all of your focus away from where the real pain is. Okay,
0: fair enough. So it's, you're running away.
1: Y- it, it is. It's and, an and escape. And we're not
0: generalizing here. You would say this is the the main...
1: Uh-huh. 100%. No way. Yeah.
0: Okay, so what is the answer? You know, if you are one of those people who's suffering right now...
1: L- let me say this, though. Th- th- that's not to say that we can't find value. Sure. And we can't bring back the lessons that we learn in the mountains to apply them to normal life. What I'm saying is you don't fundamentally heal from going out and climbing. You might feel that way, Mm -hmm. but no matter where you are. It comes back. It always comes back unless you resolve it. And you resolve it through therapy? Well, you resolve it through therapy. You resolve it through community. You resolve it through time. Uh, You resolve it really through honesty. I mean, it Mm -hmm. starts with being honest with yourself about even why am I going to climb this mountain? Right. Is it because I'm angry? Mm Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, that's not to say that it's a bad reason.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just to say that you're going to probably have a more complete integration of that experience if you can honestly identify why you're doing it.
0: Beautiful. I think also that brings up an interesting point. So so much of what does motivate these days, um, as, as where I think some of our heroes, it, it might have been motivated through I'll show you or or. Mm-hmm. those pain places, but now it's like, look what I can do. Right. Yeah. I'm in a, uh, you know, you might even not go for a hike or outside one day, but, but knowing that you can spew it on social media, that you're outdoorsy, mm-hmm. it's a different kind of motivation. Um,
1: well, I think there's a tragedy right now. I mean, social media is useful, but one of the things that I, I find so Destructive is a selfie culture, mm-hmm. which is actually really funny. Because for those people who are listening that don't know, my most famous photo ever is a selfie. <laughs> so I have to own that. And,
0: but this is before before it was a thing.
1: Yeah, it was. We we're going to need it. We've got to get to that story, mm-hmm. and we will. But it's it's really funny because I see, and it's especially with young women. I I'm see still r- not
0: okay with the, the, you putting yourself in that class because you were capturing a moment for yourself that was one of the most terrifying. Um, it, it, this wasn't a, hey, I look great selfie that no, I want to project no. to the world. This was a capturing probably the most vulnerable moment of your life. And it created cold, which yes. we will get to. So I just want to clarify that before you throw you on the bus for something <laughs> that is not equivalent at all of uh, I'm putting this out there as.
1: For know, validation. Exactly. Well, and that's my point. And I see it a lot with young, young women, especially. I don't want to point a finger there but i think that's uh that's part of our culture where and young men too but but i see radically talented young women in the arts world who are brilliant photographers brilliant painters or or very talented and uh and the pictures are always like a selfie of like look at me you know and or
0: even a selfie with the art i'm noticing exactly. these days mm-hmm. and it's sort
1: of this you know and then it becomes about the validation you're so cute oh my god your art is so amazing it's like that's not real that that is not real it that is augmented bullshit
0: yeah well it does the trick sometimes you know i'm playing devil's advocate
1: it, okay
0: i can say personally i can put up some of my greatest work as mm-hmm. a photographer mm-hmm. that i'm so proud of mm-hmm. um and it gets it it gets half or less of the attraction that, uh, that a you photo a of myself, no, no, even, even just photo of myself in it.
1: I, I get what and you're so, saying.
0: And I get so disappointed with that, but I'm like, well, that's the game of that, whatever this medium requires. And so I'll give them what they want because yeah. that's what they want. And in, intermittently, I will throw my art in and make them look at my art. Right. <laughs> Does that make sense? No.
1: And I and get so it. You got
0: to play the game a little bit. So in
1: I, my, but I'm with you on that. I mean, it's t- it's and as a as a very attractive woman. I mean, you and I have a very uh, open and honest relationship, and we talk about this stuff a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. As a very attractive woman, I also know that you felt deeply trapped
0: Absolutely. in that, mm-hmm. and so we're all put into boxes, for, right? For exactly like you started the conversation for what we look like and our gender. Yeah, but we truly have that doesn't describe us at all.
1: It doesn't. It doesn't even you know woman of color, uh, privileged white girl, uh, you know, patriarchal, privileged white boy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, n- these <laughs> that's things... That's just the box
0: that we came in. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's that was our vehicle for being born and it doesn't, right. it doesn't predispose us necessarily to the output and impact we can have on the world.
0: But I will also take every gift I was given and use it toward creating a message or... Fair enough. Yeah. I guess my
1: heart breaks a little bit because that's where we find value you know especially young women i'm like your value is not because you're fucking hot your value is because you're really talented and and it's sad to see the the way that instagram has sort of specifically instagram has really altered our uh our understanding of value
0: i hear you but i've also got to play devil's advocate in that you know we try to blame society but we are society what pictures? do you look at what pictures I, do you click on? And, and I'm not speaking for us specifically, but, um, that's what I'm saying. My heart breaks. Exactly. It breaks Cause for it's me just too. the way it is, right? Yeah, like, is. like regardless, we're still animals and we're still sexually motivated. Absolutely. And therefore a hot picture a guy or a girl is going to get attention and let's just call it what it is. And then yes, the more sophisticated we are, we can go for the art hopefully, but at the root, <laughs> at the root, that's what drives so much. And that's just the way it is.
1: You're right. You're, I don't even. I, there's nothing I can. But st- we
0: can change it through what pictures we do look at and yeah. where we do see value. And I think as we become more mature, we do. Yeah. And so, so it gets taken care of.
1: I mean, every my most favorite to your point, my most favorite photographs that I post, like these are representative of where I want to go in my world and an art and like and how I want to represent my vision. Least liked, the yeah. most liked photograph yeah. I've ever had was not even. The two most. One was the selfie. Yeah. And one was a picture of me.
0: Isn't that ironic?
1: And I've been having... So it goes both ways. Yeah. I've been Mm -hmm. having this conversation like, well, do I post more pictures of myself?
0: Yes. (laughs) Your friend, as your friend, like, yes, I love your work. You know how much I love your work. But I think another point that we need to remember as we're posting is this is how we speak to the world to our friends and family as to what's going on in our life and so those people that genuinely care about us um and those people that don't necessarily know us but they genuinely uh are interested in us as humans they also want to know and so just for that reason yes it's okay to just post a a marginal photo as far as you know yeah. as a photographer would, would see it um just to let people know what's up you know that's the instagram culture that we're talking about but any more on this subject because it's a great subject
1: that's the thing with you and I we could talk for
0: I know I know I've only given us two hours I know Uh, but can I also just say since we're talking about it your imagery is so incredible thank you (laughs) thank you you. so much I it is as I have figured out how to only look at the posts that I want to see they are so so beautiful Um, along with the stories you're telling but yeah your work. I appreciate work is that. Is it, what is it's it? It's just
1: at Corey Richards with yeah. no E.
0: He's also very, he, he writes very poetically. So. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, friends. If you enjoyed the conversation, give us a review on iTunes. It Help spread the word and be sure to subscribe. Tune in next time for the second part of my talk with Corey. We'll get to one of his most famous images and how he copes with the competition that comes up with being a well-known adventure photographer. Also, huge thanks to our sponsor, Weave, who makes 3D custom insoles and sandals specific to the contours of your feet. Fans of the Showing Up podcast can get that 20% off all orders by using that code, SHOWINGUP. That's showingup at w-i-i-v-v dot com. Our theme is Wings by Nikolai Halaitis used under the Creative Commons license. Until next time, see you in the mountains, unicorns.